0: That's cultivator motivation and think of all the vast number of sentient beings everywhere who are each having their own individual experiences. But all the ordinary beings are stuck in some form of dukkha whether it's explicit pain, or the dukkha of change, that our happiness doesn't last, or just the dukkha of being under the influence of karma and afflictions, and thus having no freedom. So we're living in this universe filled with sentient beings that are trapped like that, overwhelmed by their ignorance, anger, and attachment. And we are just like them. But we also have the fortune to have met the Dharma. So it's important we make use of that fortune and practice well and do it not for our own benefit, But seeing that we're able to practice because other beings support us, because our food and clothing and shelter and medicine come from other beings, they're the ones who keep us alive. So we need to practice to repay their kindness. And the best way to do that is to develop all the skills of a fully awakened one. And so we need to attain Buddhahood. So that's a long-term purpose, but it's our motivation even for the hour and a half or so that we're spending together this evening. May this be one more drop in the bucket of the collection of merit and wisdom that will bring us to full awakening. Okay. So, last week there was some confusion about a few points and I thought I would try and clarify things and Venerable Tarpa and Venerable Seppel sent me pages about different terms that are actually found in the uh, beginning Dura text, the beginning collective topic te- text. But we, because we haven't gone through all of those, then we don't know all these terms. And so when they come up, they they create confusion. And also last week, I I created confusion because I mixed up uh, mutually exclusive with Uh, dichotomy and they're not the same thing okay so let's talk about mutually exclusive and contradictory and dichotomy okay and try and get those straight to start with okay so mutually exclusive things are uh, they have to be two things that are different and both of those two things have to be existent Okay, they can't be non-existent. So it's two things that exist. They are different, and a common locus between them is not possible. In other words, there's nothing that is both this one and that one. So an example uh, could be like pink and green. Yeah, you you could say a cloth is pink and green. But, you know, what is pink is never green, okay? What is green is never pink. So those are mutually exclusive, okay? Two people who are different people are mutually exclusive. If you're Harry, you're not Francis, okay? Then contradictory is, again, it's similar. It's two things that do not share a common ground. This one, I'm not sure if if this needs if these two things need to be existent or not. And so, Venerable Tarpa, I was wondering the example examples you gave of contradictory did they come from Geshe Zopa's text or did you make them up? So when Geshe Zopa said it's F and non-F. That was from Geshe Sofa. I mean, that wasn't your example, okay? Because there, there was one example. Somebody gave the example of mutually exclusive as uh, existent and non-existent, and that those two things can't be mutually exclusive. Why not? That both of them have to be existent, and non-existent is non-existent. Okay. So, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Remember we talked about that before? Yeah. So the category non-existent is non-existent. So it can't, somebody had given that as an example of two things mutually exclusive, but it isn't because both things have to be existent. With contradictory, it doesn't uh, specify. So it says there are two, there are two ways to be contradictory, indirectly contradictory or directly contradictory. And among indirectly contradictory, there's also two ways. So it's said in this complicated language, but the meaning is not too difficult, okay? So the first way of indirectly contradictory, okay, you have two things, and something that is both is impossible, but it's something that that is neither is possible. Okay, so uh, what's an example of two things where being both of them is impossible, but being neither of them is possible? Pink and green, okay, because something can't be both pink and green, but something can be neither pink nor green. For example, blue. Okay, so that—that's that's the first way of indirectly con- contradictory. The second way is something that is both is impossible, and something being neither is impossible. Yeah. So permanent and impermanent. Well, actually, let's use permanent and produced. Okay, permanent and produced. Yeah, something that is permanent and also produced, impossible. Okay, and something being neither permanent nor produced is impossible. Why? Yeah, because all existence are encompassed by either being permanent or being produced. Okay, now directly contradictory is the same as the second kind of indirectly contradictory, except the terminology itself is very explicit. And so uh, this one, okay, the terminology itself shows that both things uh, are impossible, so there's no common locus, and being neither is also impossible. So here it doesn't specify whether the two things have to be existent or not. So somebody gave the example: existent and non-existent. I'm assuming that came from Geshe Zopa. Okay. So then that directly contradictory is is a dichotomy, you know. And with the indirectly contradictory, this the second one. Yeah, that may also be a dichotomy too if we're only talking about existent things. Okay, so there's a a question about contradictory if everything has to be existent or non-existent because with directly uh, contradictory, the terminology, existent, non-existent. Or you gave the example, it's either a cow or a non-cow. But non-cow includes non-existence. That's why I was asking for was Geshe-Zoppa's examples. Or, okay. So uh, if, if that came from geshe then it seems like to be directly contradictory, uh, both things don't need to be existent. But directly contradictory in any case is a dichotomy. Okay. Okay. Then you gave this thing about how do they, they compare being mutually exclusive and contradictory, and I'm not going to go into that but not all the examples were were correct that you guys gave because there was confusion about one same different one nature different natures these kinds of things okay so first of all the word one is in tibetan is the same word it can be translated as one or same so the the meaning whether we say one or same it means the same thing, okay? So to be one or to be the same, then it has to be the same in uh, both name and meaning, okay? So one, one thermos, okay? It's not plural, it's one, yeah? Got that. Now, if we have two thermoses here that look exactly alike, are they one? Are they the same? But they look exactly alike. Aren't they the same? Why not? (laughs) Yeah, they're two different things. They're not the same in name and meaning. Okay. The name may be the same, white thermos and white thermos. But the two things you're referring to are not the same. Okay. Now, being one or being the same and being one, oh, well, let's, before we do that. So, different is just two things that are different, right? They're different in name or in uh, meaning. Yeah. So, now to be one, and to be one nature are not the same, okay? And sometimes for nature, they say entity or substance, but they never really define what entity or nature means. You're just supposed to grok it somehow by enough examples, okay? So the two truths, yeah, failed truths and ultimate truths. Are they the same? Why not? They're different in names and they're two totally different objects, aren't they? A veiled truth is not an ultimate truth and ultimate truth is not a veiled truth. Okay? But, so they're not the same, but they are the same nature. Why are they the same nature? Because when one exists, the other one exists. Okay? So you can't have one without having the other. So they're one nature, but they're not one. Okay? Now, uh, the two truths, are they different? Yes, they're different. Are they different natures? No. No. Okay, Um, the glasses and the clock, are they one, are they one nature, are they different, are they different natures, yes, okay, so um, a seed and the sprout that came from the seed, are they one, no, are they one nature, yeah, to be one nature, they have to exist at the same time. Yeah, but at that moment. Yeah, but the two to things to be the same, they cannot be cause and effect. There's two types of relationship. One is a cause and effect relationship. One is the one nature relationship. So you can't be both cause and effect and one nature because to be cause and effect, the two things have to exist at different times. Cause and effect do not exist at the same time. But to be one nature, they have to exist at the same time. Okay, so are the seed and the sprout that goes from it, are they different? Are they different natures? Yeah. Okay. How about uh, permanent and uncompounded? Are they the same? No, why not? Different names. Are they one nature? Permanent and uncompounded? Yeah, they're one nature, aren't they? Yeah, they're equivalent. Are they different? Yes, they're different. Are they different natures? No. Okay? So that that's one and different. Yeah. So so keep that that clear in your mind. You know, one and one nature aren't the same. Different and different nature aren't the same. And that there's two relationships. One is cause and effect. Where things must, the two must exist at different times. And the other kind of relationship is one nature, and there they must exist at the same time. There was one thing in what you quoted from Geshe Zopa, where it was talking about the non Buddhists saying, and it said the way De Chen edited it, that the non Buddhists think that the, the two truths are contradictory. Okay, and they're wrong. Yeah, so so that would make it sound like the two truths are contradictory. Okay, the two truths, yeah, are uh, yeah, it's true they aren't contradictory, but. They are contradictory, yeah. If it's one, if it's permanent, if it's a veiled truth, it can't be an ultimate truth. If it's an ultimate truth, it can't be a veiled truth. But the problem with the non-Buddhists, what they can't establish is that they can't establish that emptiness and uh, conventional truths or en- emptiness and conventional existence yeah, are uh, complementary. Okay, so they think if things are empty, I should say lower they can't... The lower, the, lower schools, the lower schools, yeah. So they can't establish that being empty and being... Uh, let me say it properly. That being empty and uh, being... Conventionally existent, they can't establish both. Schools, yes, well, well, them too, yeah. yeah. But yeah. yeah, so them and the lower Buddhist schools, okay, because they think that if something conventionally exists, it must inherently exist, and they think that if it's empty, then it must be totally non-existent. So they see being empty and being conventionally existent as contradictory. And they're not contradictory, they're complementary. Okay? So the two truths are contradictory. Because if you're one truth, you can't be the other one. But being conventionally existent and being empty are not contradictory. Okay? You got it? So when we talk about how do things exist, everything exists conventionally. Nothing exists ultimately. Okay? So the meaning of... So even emptiness exists conventionally. Okay? So the meaning of conventional in conventional truth and conventional existence is not the same. And the meaning of ultimate in ultimate truth and ultimate existence is not the same. Okay? So the meaning of conventional in uh, conventional existence simply means it exists. Okay? And so... Everything, anything that exists must be conventionally existent. There's no other kind of existence. So even ultimate truths exist conventionally. Because conventionally existent, they're the conventional, just means it exists, okay? And conventional truth or veiled truth, it means that something Does not exist the way it appears, or it means that something is true for uh, in the face of ignorance. So, their conventional or veiled has a different meaning. In ultimate truth, ultimate means it's the final or ultimate mode of existence, it's the deepest mode of existence. But in ultimate existence, ultimate means found under an ultimate analysis. So that's why nothing exists ultimately. Okay? So emptiness is an ultimate truth, but it doesn't exist ultimately. Okay? So you have to be clear here because you hear the word ultimate in ultimate truth and ultimate existence and you think it means the same thing but the meaning of ultimate is different in those two different cases what does it, mean in this it means it's find on un- yeah it's able to bear analysis it's findable under an ultimate analysis yeah so emptiness is an ultimate truth but it does not exist Ultimately. Okay, no, it's not. I'm going to explain that now. Okay, findable under uh, uh, ultimate analysis is the it, conceptually, it's not hard to understand. Okay. Okay, so not being able to bear analysis by reasoning and Not being able to bear analysis by reasoning, analyzing the ultimate, or not being able to bear analysis by ultimate analysis, okay? Or not being able to bear ultimate analysis, I think that's a shorter way to see it, is not the same as being negated by that reasoning, okay? So, you know, Sam cannot bear analysis by when you apply ultimate analysis, yeah? Because if you're looking for who Sam really is, what the word Sam really refers to, you can't isolate something and say that's it, yeah? So under ultimate analysis, Sam is unfindable. However, Sam's conventional existence is not undermined by that ultimate analysis why because ultimate analysis is its purview its range is just it's looking for things that are findable under ultimate analysis it it its purview it can't find conventional truths okay so what establishes a conventional truth a conventional reliable cognizer. Okay. So the purview of the reasoning analyzing the ultimate is just an object's ultimate nature. That reasoning doesn't examine a thing's conventional existence and it doesn't have the ability to establish something as conventionally existent or not. Because it's just concerned with the deeper mode of existence, the ultimate existence. Okay? So an Arya's reasoning analyzing the ultimate perceives only the ultimate truth, emptiness. Okay? It doesn't perceive the table and the chair and the, the cat and the dog. Okay, But just because... That mind, even though it's an ultimate mind, it perceives the ultimate mode of existence, just because it doesn't see the cat and the dog doesn't mean the cat and the dog don't exist because the cat and dog are not in the purview of that mind. Just as okay, my eye consciousness can see colors and shape, but it can't tell whether sounds exist or not. Because the purview of the eye consciousness is only color and shape. It isn't sound, it isn't smell. So just because my eye consciousness can't hear the, the ring of the bell doesn't mean that the, the tone of the bell is non-existent. The eye consciousness just can't perceive it. So it's the same way. The ultimate Ultimate analysis, or mind—you know—understanding the ultimate cannot perceive conventional objects. Can't perceive you and me or whatever, okay? Unless, of course, you're Buddha, then all those the two truths appear to the to uh, the same consciousness. Although they still have a way of differentiating those two consciousnesses, but we won't get into that. Okay, so an Arya's reasoning analyzing the ultimate does not see conventionalities such as tables and persons, so it can't establish their existence and it can't negate their existence. Okay, so existence is not posited from the viewpoint of the ultimate. So, not finding something when searched for with ultimate analysis does not negate that thing's conventional existence. Okay? So ultimate analysis examines if an object exists inherently or not. It doesn't search for mere phenomena. So if I am analyzing, you know, the table with ultimate analysis... I'm trying to see how does that table, what is its real nature? How does it really exist? Okay. That mind is not searching for the table. It's searching for the ultimate nature of the table. So the table and its ultimate nature, they're one nature. Okay. But they're perceived by different cognizers. So, nothing can withstand or bear analysis analyzing the ultimate. So, therefore, nothing inherently exists. Because no matter what you analyze with ultimate analysis, you can't find it. Okay? So, since ultimate analysis is checking if something inherently exists because you can't find its inherent existence the ultimate analysis you know finds its emptiness but those conventional those conventionally existent phenomena still exist so ultimate analysis does not destroy the existence of conventional things it only shows that those conventional things do not exist inherently. Okay, so those, con- those phenomena still exist conventionally. Now what about emptiness? When you search for emptiness with the reasoning, analyzing the ultimate, can you find emptiness? Because if you find emptiness, that would mean that emptiness exists inherently. no. When you search for emptiness with ultimate analysis, you do not find emptiness, but you do find the emptiness of emptiness. So, emptiness also is empty. Yeah, emptiness also does not exist inherently. So, this is important because when uh, Buddhism first came to Tibet, there were people who thought that, well, you can't find emptiness under ultimate analysis, therefore it must be totally non-existent. So they went to the extreme of nihilism, confusing emptiness with total non-existence. Yeah, Or they thought, well, if you can still find emptiness under ultimate analysis, then it must be inherently existent. So then they thought emptiness is some kind of absolute, inherently existent thing. And it's not. Emptiness is also dependent. Okay, so emptiness is dependent and it's also empty. Okay, so being dependent... And being empty are not contradictory. Now, what about what are the four points between being dependent and emptiness? Not being empty, but emptiness. Is there something that is both dependent and emptiness? Yes, the emptiness of the cup. Yes. Is there something that is dependent? That is not emptiness? The cup. Is there something that is not dependent but is emptiness? No. Is there something that is neither dependent nor emptiness? Rabbitoids, okay, inherent existence. So conventionalities are established by their own conventional reliable cognizers. They're not established by reasoning, analyzing the ultimate. So conventional reliable cognizers are consciousnesses of sentient beings that correctly realize the conventional existence of an object without analyzing its ultimate nature. So, for example, our visual consciousness sees the table, and that uh, conventional reliable cognizer establishes the existence of the table. Is that conventional ultimate, uh, uh, conventional reliable cognizer, is it erroneous, establishing the existence of the table? Is it erroneous? Is it a wrong consciousness? No. no. Is it mistaken? Yes. Yes. Why is it mistaken? Yeah, because the, it, it inherent existence appears to that mind. If that mind grasped at the table as existing inherently, then it too would be an erroneous consciousness. Okay, but instead, you know, the table appears inherently existent to it, so it's not erroneous. But if it grasps that appearance as true, then it's self-grasping ignorance, which is a wrong consciousness. Yeah, then it wouldn't be called a conventional reliable cognizer. Okay. Okay. So similarly, not being found by a probri- probing awareness yeah, and being refuted by a probing awareness are not the same. So when a probing awareness searches to see if SAM exists for its own side, they don't, it doesn't find a, a truly existent SAM. It finds only the emptiness of SAM. Okay, But it doesn't refute the conventional existence of Sam because Sam, Sam's conventional existence is not in the purview of that probing awareness. Probing awareness, its the Tibetan is rigshe. As some people translate it as, oh, there's many different translations. A reasoning mind or something like that but the thing is, Jim explained to me that probing awareness doesn't necessarily have to be reasoning, like thinking about a syllogism or, or a consequence or something like that. Okay, so thus, do not confuse the following. Okay, so here, one thing not to confuse, not being able to bear analysis and being undermined by that analysis so a dog cannot bear ultimate analysis but its conventional existence is not undermined by that ultimate analysis why not? right because the conventional existence of the dog is not within the purview of what that uh, ultimate analysis can perceive Okay, another pair that you shouldn't confuse. Being seen by an aria's exalted wisdom of meditative equipoise and being seen as non-existent by that wisdom. Okay, so being seen by an aria's exalted wisdom of meditative equipoise and being seen as non-existent by that wisdom those are two different things. So what is seen by an Arya's exalted wisdom of meditative equipoise? Emptiness. Emptiness. Okay. What is not seen by that wisdom? Conventionalities. Conventionalities. Okay. So a dog is not seen by an Arya's wisdom of meditative equipoise. But the dog is not seen as non-existent by that wisdom because it's not in the purview of that wisdom. Okay. Now another pair, don't confuse. Not being found by reasoning analyzing the ultimate and being found as non-existent by that reasoning Okay, so what is not found or, or put it this way, what is what is uh, or put it this way, okay, a dog <laughs> is not found by, by the reasoning analyzing the ultimate, but it is not found as non-existent by that reasoning either. Then, Some more things not to confuse. Being established by reasoning analyzing the ultimate and being able to bear analysis by that reasoning. So what is established by the reasoning analyzing the ultimate? Emptiness. Emptiness. Okay. So the emptiness of the clock is established by the reasoning analyzing the ultimate. the the ultimate, okay, is the clock, can the clock uh, bear analysis by that reasoning, can the emptiness of the clock bear analysis by that reasoning, no, because nothing can bear analysis when you're searching to see if it's inherently existent or not, okay, then two more things, don't confuse, being seen by an Arya's exalted wisdom of meditative equipoise and being seen as ultimately existent by that wisdom. Okay, so the emptiness of the dog is seen by an Arya's wisdom of meditative equipoise, but the emptiness of the dog is not seen as ultimately existent by that wisdom. Why not? Yeah, nothing is ultimately existent. Then, being found by reasoning, analyzing the ultimate? Don't confuse that with being inherently existent. Okay? So, what is found by the reasoning, analyzing the ultimate? Emptiness. Emptiness. Okay? So just because it's found by the reasoning analyzing the ultimate doesn't mean it's ultimately existent because nothing exists ultimately. So being, being able to bear analysis by the ultimate and being findable by ultimate analysis are different. Okay. We did that. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. I always wonder at what point a probing awareness is a probing awareness. Like like we talk about the probing awareness being the mind of an aria in meditative equipoise. But what about an ordinary being?
0: Yeah, it can be an ordinary is being. Is there a different name analyzed. for it?
1: It's all the same. It's it, all probing awareness, it's, analyzing it's, the ultimate. You just have different
0: right. levels it's of It's just different levels of it.
1: Okay. Okay? Yeah.
0: Because one will see the emptiness of the table conceptually, the other one will see it directly.
1: Okay. Then my other question goes back to what you said about the two types of relationship. Mm-hmm. Is that, what's the word, exhaustive? There are either cause and effect or one nature, that's all there is? Yeah, when they talk about relationships, things, they say there's two kinds. So, like but where does mutual dependence fall? So I'm thinking, like long and short. Long and short doesn't appear to be either one of those things, to my mind. It's not causal, and it,
0: uh, okay, that's true. But long and short are are uh, they're mutually they're mutually dependent. dependent, right? Yeah, but uh, they wouldn't be. Well, sometimes they say related and dependent mean the same thing. Hmm. Yeah. Sometimes it seems like they don't. Okay, so, so what's our question again? Uh, mu- no, long is, and short.
1: Yeah, it, it, well, really the question is where does the idea of mutual dependence fall within this idea that there's only two types of relationships? Yeah, okay. Well, something that is long is not short. Right. Long,
0: long is not short.
1: But they're not one nature.
0: Yeah, they're not one nature. So maybe they're different. They're different, but they're dependent on each other.
1: Right. But they're not causally dependent. No. In this sense, but they're neither, they're neither one nature, nor are they cause and effect. Right. So I think this is in one volume. Oh, now that yeah. I'm saying this, I'll, I'll look.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they depend on each other. But they're not causally related, and they're not one nature. Yeah, if long exists, short must exist. Mm. Are they one nature? I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe they're different, but maybe they still are one nature. Yeah, that's true. You can't have long without having short. If you're just talking about long and short as abstract, but we can't say, uh, we can have a long piece of rope without having a short piece of rope. Okay. So don't don't think that, you know, as just concepts, long and short. Yeah. They're dependent. Are they one nature? Yeah, maybe. But but one thing cannot be both of those. There's somebody wildly raising her hand in the back of the room who
1: who can't put it down. Yes. So, Venerable Seppel was saying that it's an essential relationship. It's not. Yeah, essential means one nature. Well, she was saying that the Geshe's
0: referred to it as an essential relationship. I, I don't know. Because uh, usually essence, nature, entity are the same. So I don't know. So she's saying what? Long and short are an essential relationship? Yes. What does that mean?
1: Well, sh- she took away her comment, but she was <laughs> saying that it's not causal and it has to fit in some category. So it's said to be essential. That's what she said earlier. Yeah. That i uh, yeah, that's a
0: question we can ask, so put that on the Geshe Dadu list, okay, yeah, I mean you can for example, you can say ultimate and i don't know or the it could also be that the lower schools say there's two kinds of relationships, and maybe uh. The majumikas say that there's another kind. But usually essence, they say, means the same as nature and entity. So, yeah. See if she can ask her to investigate that and what it means. Yes.
1: If you have a two-foot-long rope, three ropes, a two-foot-long rope, a 10-foot-long rope, Uh and a 30-foot-long rope, Uh that 10-foot-long rope depending on which you compare it with, is either long or short. So that one rope can be long and it could be short, depending on...
0: Yes. That's Mm -hmm. why things are mutually established.
1: Right. But I guess so something can be long and short.
0: But only (laughs) in relationship to something else. In the same way... A seed can be a cause and it can't be an effect, but it can't be a cause and effect in relationship to one thing. So the 10-foot rope can't be long and short in relationship to one thing. You know, it can't be both. It's either got to be longer or it's shorter. So a seed is either the cause of that sprout or it's the result of the plant that came before it. It can't be both a cause and a, and a result at the same time, you know, in relationship to the same thing. Okay? Yeah. Why is it often said that the two truths are one nature and different isolates? Yeah. Instead of different objects, which. Yeah. yeah. So. They, well, different isolates. Isolate is a concept that's kind of difficult. What an isolate is, is the thing that is both the same in name and in meaning as something else, which means that very object and nothing else. Okay, so the isolate of this table is this table, so it's referring. Only to this table. Okay, it's not referring to the table in the media room because the table in the media room has a different name than this table. Okay, so the two, saying the two truths are one nature is showing how very close they are, that one can't exist without the other. But saying that they're different isolates is indicating that, that they're different phenomena. They are not the same. So sometimes it's said uh, one one nature different, uh, nominally different. Okay? Because, you know, in terms of, of an isolate, uh, what is not the isolate of this table is this table in the media room and also what is not an isolate of this table is a can okay so yeah because of the this idea of isolates are nominally different for the longest time I kept thinking they were the same object and so
1: got very confused
0: yeah they could be the same in what they're referring to but they're not exactly the same if they don't have the same name. Okay, so the table in the media room and this table, those two words refer to the same object. Okay, but they aren't the same isolate because they're different names. Yeah. Isolate is a v- it's a it's a very uh, funny concept and, and people have a hard time with it. Okay, now I would really like to finish Gomchen Lamrim, so that by the time, so that uh, when we start, when we have the uh, EML, we're starting the um, the new book. You know, approaching the Buddhist path. I can't get straight the difference between mere veilings and veiled truths, like. Do we introduce this
1: idea of mere veilings just to point out how lower arias are seeing conventionalities differently? yeah mere
0: mere veilings and veiled truths are are the same, they're equivalent, okay, but when you say mere veilings it's it's pointing out you know that they aren't truths for a mind that sees things. Completely accurately, and, you know, on, in an in a uh, in an ultimate way. Yeah, they're mere veilings, so they merely exist. You know, in relationship to an ignorant mind, it's it's emphasizing that, and mere can mean different things in different situations. Just as the word imputed and substantial can mean different things in different situations. So it can get confusing. (laughs) Duh. Okay, so Gomchen Lam Rim. Okay, so the divisions of insight. So there's four, four divisions, but you start out with two, but each of the two have two. So, insight of the four natures. One is thorough differentiation, which is an insight that observes the varieties. Whenever you hear varieties or uh, the diversity, it's referring to the multiplicity of all these conventional phenomena. Okay, It means lots of things. And the exceedingly thorough differentiation observes the mode. When you hear mode, it means the ultimate mode of existence. Okay? So there's two types of insight. One observing the variety of phenomena, one observing the mode of existence. Okay? And each of these has investigation of coarse objects and analysis of subtle objects. So that's how you get the four Okay, then another way of talking about insight, Gomchen Lamrim says, is of insight of the three doors. So arising from a sign, two is arisen from thorough searching, and three is arisen from individual investigation. So this is in your Gomchen Lamrim text. Okay, so if with respect to the self, Okay, the first one, thorough differ, differ, uh, arising from a sign, insight arising from a sign, would observe selflessness, observe the selflessness already ascertained and attends to its signs, but does not settle much itself. So it doesn't kind of realize anything new. It it observes the the selflessness that you already realized. Then the second one, the insight arising, uh, insight arising, uh, arisen from thorough searching. So this settles the meaning for the, so that means it realizes. Yeah, it settles the meaning, or yeah, realizes conventionally. um, For the or conceptually it settles the meaning for the sake of ascertaining that which has not been ascertained before. So you under whatever you haven't ascertained before, this the second one is now you understand what it is. That's what settle the meaning is. You understand what it is. You're not confused about what the meaning is. And then the third one, the insight arisen from individual investigation in res- with respect to the self, carries out an analysis, as done before, of the meaning already ascertained. So here you're, at, you're uh, again uh, analyzing what you've already ascertained. Then there are six objects that are sought by thorough seeking. So thorough-seeking or thorough-searching was the second one. Okay. There's, there's six objects. So the first one is, is the meaning. So this is examine, examining the meaning of terms and words to understand what they mean. Yeah, This is all, if, if you want, it's in Lung Chenmo too. The second is examination of things or facts, and that involves, for example, determining if the six sources are internal or external. You're examining those things or those facts. The third of the six is examination of characteristics, and that examines the specific and general characteristics (coughs) of something, as well as the shared and unshared characteristics of the objects of the four establishments of mindfulness. So shared characteristics uh, would be all the aggregates are impermanent, they're all selfless, they're like that, okay? Individual characteristics are, are uh, you know, the mind is the nature of clarity and awareness. That's an individual characteristic. Then the fourth is the examination of classes. So that uh, entails examining different classes of phenomena. For for example, examining the class of wholesome objects to see their good qualities and their advantages, and examining the class of unwholesome objects to see their drawbacks and disadvantages. So here, what we're getting at. Is You can see that insight doesn't just mean insight into emptiness. There's lots of different kinds of insight. And insight is trying to understand many different kinds of things. Then the fifth is examination of the three times. So that insight examines what existed in the past, what exists in the present, and what will exist in the future. And then it also contemplates that the past, present, and future are designated in dependence on each other and don't exist from their own side. Then there's examination of the four principles or the four laws of nature. So this, uh, His Holiness brings this one up a lot. So uh, this these four principles are dependence, function, uh, evidence and reality, okay? So de- de- examining the first of those four principles, examining dependence, and uh, investigates how results arise from their causes, okay? So how a result depends on its cause. Um, it, in terms of mutual dependence, it understands how a cause is conceptually designated dependent on its result. And uh, this also examines the conventional, the ultimate, and the different instances of each one. Then the second principle, examining the function, entails examining phenomena to, ex- to uh, discern their individual functions. In other words, that fire burns, okay? (laughs) You discern that. That's a good thing to discern, okay? Um, It also involves examining the functioning of the circle of three, agent, object, and action. Then the third principle to examine is um, nature. Yeah, evidence, I think. I have nature here. okay, let's see what it says. it It exam it involves examining if something exists and can be established by any of the three uh, reliable cognizers, direct perceivers, inference, or reliable scripture. Okay, so evidence, yeah, it has to have evidence like being you examine if there's a reliable cognizer that knows it. Although sometimes they do say this one is, uh, is nature. Anyway, then the fourth one, examining, is examining realities. Okay, so that uh, examines realities commonly known in the world, such as waters being wet. Oh, actually, okay, this one is... Uh, this, this nature can't be understood by reasoning. So maybe examining reality is the same as examining nature. It's in a different order. Uh, because the, the terminology in Rim, okay, it has dependency, functions, nature, and establishment through validity. But establishment through, through validity sounds like the third one here, which is ev- evidence. Okay. And then nature sounds like the fourth one here, which is also said to be reality. Okay. So uh, so an example, examine the natures that are commonly known in the world, such as the waters being wet. Okay. That's, it's nature. You can't, you don't have to prove it. That's just the way it is. Okay. Okay. Um, Others are to examine inconceivable uh, realities, such as the Buddha's abilities, and the third is to examine uh, the abiding reality or emptiness, so like the nature of emptiness. Okay, so Gomchen Lam says, in brief, by the six kinds of searching, those four kinds of Insight in terms of nature are attained. It is taught in the in the Shrivaka, uh, grounds that insight too has the four kinds of attention: tight, tight focus, and so on. So those were. Uh, remember, we talked about tight focus, uninterrupted focus, uh, interrupted focus, uninterrupted focus, and the fourth one is. Uh, where it's, it's stable. I forget the term for it. Okay, then the next outline is how to meditate on insight. Okay, and so serenity and insight are not distinguished by their objects. Okay, so this is important. As both serenity and insight have both objects. So you can have serenity On conventional conventionalities or on emptiness, you can cultivate serenity. On either, you can also have insight that observes conventional phenomena, and insight that observes the ultimate nature. So it's so, you know, we talk about yeah all the time. We hear shamatha and vipassana. Okay. So, serenity and insight. So, the difference between them is not the object that they're perceiving. Okay. So, um, we talk about, because we've already talked about how to develop serenity before. Yeah. So, we have to explain the meaning of meditating on insight based on serenity. Okay. Okay. So, Gomchen um, Lamrim says, in meditative equipoise on the completion stage of highest yoga tantra, insight is not necessarily analytical meditation as in the perfection vehicle. However, one-pointed concentration on the view is asserted. So, this has to do with... Um, Yeah, and that system determining to which vehicle, great or fundamental, which path belongs. Okay, so I think, uh, yeah, so here it's just talking about tantra. It has its own way of combining serenity and insight. We won't go into that now. (laughs) Okay, the next outline explaining how to actually meditate on insight based on serenity. Okay, so here... Regarding the way to exercise both analytic, uh, analytical and stabilizing meditations, the means to cultivate a balance between the strength of serenity and insight is to make analytical meditation ride the mount of serenity and occasionally to practice stabilizing meditation. I'll just read what it says here, then I'll explain it. You are to alternate the two. Some say that no matter how much you familiarize yourself with conception, from it non-conceptual superior wisdom will not arise. This would imply that from contamination, non-contamination; from mundane, supermundane; from ordinary beings, Aryas, and so on. From the former, the latter cannot arise because these two are causes and effects of different categories. Some assert that thusness is beyond comprehension and that no mind, whatever it may be, can understand it. Okay, so this happened some of the initially when the, uh, Buddhism was going into Tibet. You know, thusness, emptiness is inconceivable. Yeah, so, however, The term inconceivable and beyond comprehension and so on serve to counter the conceit of understanding emptiness by learning and reflection alone or to counteract the apprehension of profound meaning as truly existent as well. Otherwise, they would contradict many scriptures or reasonings. Okay? So in other words, and, and Jeffrey talked a lot about this, that when we say the ultimate is incomprehensible it's inconceivable it doesn't mean that you can't under, you can't realize it it means that you the when you understand it through words and concepts it's that's totally different than understanding it through direct realization okay so that's what inconceivable means. So yes, you can conceive. You can conceive about emptiness. In fact, to realize emptiness, we have to first have a correct conceptual understanding of it. We don't just sit there and go empty, 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 empty and then the ultimate real, you know truth kind of magically appears and we know, and we recognize it. No, it involves this whole process of learning it negation, figuring out what does exist after you negate, and so on. So when inconceivable and incomprehensible, it doesn't mean that you can't conceive it and talk about it. We're talking about it right now, aren't we? You have to talk about emptiness. But how you understand emptiness conceptually and how you understand it directly are Totally different, so that's the meaning. Okay, then, the measure of having achieved insight by meditation. Through the six preliminaries, during sessions and in between, recall the key points for counteracting laxity and restlessness, impelled by mindfulness, introspective awareness, and so on, and sustain the stability aspect. When, in this way, analysis by means of discriminating wisdom leads to complete pliancy, as explained before, insight is achieved and the union of the two is also attained. Okay, but, and it's it's going to explain this a little. Let me read the next paragraph too. The two here, how to unite the two? The two are unite are serenity and insight. Union means each permeates the other. So when by the force of analysis, serenity is attained, both analysis of the supreme dharma, which is insight, and one-pointed serenity mix and combine in equal balance. The process is the same for either object, reality or the diversity of phenomena. In this way, as a means to ascertain the practice of sages from relying on spiritual masters up to teren- serenity and insight, I have composed this sweet nectar in, in, in intelligible verse so that I may have the good fortune to meet this path. And we want a good translation coming from it. Okay, so what this is talking about is how do you com- how do you combine serenity and insight? Okay, because serenity is mostly stabilizing insight, stabilizing meditation. And insight is mostly analysis. When you do stabilizing meditation, you're fixing your mind on one object. You don't want to change objects because changing objects disturbs the stability, the one-pointedness. When you're analyzing, you're probing. And so you're looking at things from this angle and that angle and the other. So the, the analysis can disturb the stability because the analysis is seeing things from different perspectives and sometimes seeing different objects. So in general stabilizing meditation and analytical meditation they they they're difficult to combine, okay? Because one disturbs the other. To unite serenity and insight, okay? First of all, to to gain serenity you might uh, remember that to gain serenity, we had to uh, gain physical, physical and mental pliancy, and then the bliss of mental and physical pliancy. Did I say that in the right order? Okay, so first it's mental pliancy, then physical pliancy. Okay. And then physical pliance, uh, then physical bliss and mental bliss. Okay, so mental and physical pliancy arise in that order, and then physical bliss, and then no mental bliss. Physical bliss, and then mental bliss. Okay. So, so f- what did I say? First one is mental pliancy okay let me have... kind of Yeah except i can never remember it okay so usually like to attain serenity yeah through your single appointedness you gain the mental pliancy and then the physical pliancy and then the bliss of the physic- of physical bliss and and mental bliss. Okay, so, so it, no, the bliss of physical pliancy, then the bliss of mental pliancy. Okay, so, but it's your single pointedness that makes the pliancy arise. Okay, that's when you're meditating to attain serenity. When you're trying to to combine serenity and insight, yeah, then. You meditate, you alternate, stabilizing and analytical, even though at first one disturbs the other, until the force, until the analysis induces the pliancy of serenity. Okay? So th- you, to unite serenity and insight, the analysis induces the mental and physical pliancy and the bliss of physical and mental pliancy. Okay, so instead of the single-pointedness doing it, it's the analysis. But to get to that, you have to alternate them, even though they disturb each other, until the analytical, you know, makes the, the the pliancy of serenity come. And then the two are united. Okay? And so, you know, what we want to do to realize emptiness is unite serenity and insight on the object of emptiness. Yeah, when you first do that with a conceptual understanding of emptiness, then that's the demarcation of entering the path of preparation. And then when... You do that in terms of direct perception of emptiness. That's the demarcation of entering the path of seeing. Okay, it looks like we might finish Gokchen Lam Rim tonight. This is exciting. Okay, next one is how to train in the Vajrayana in particular. So the wise who have trained in the common path, in other words, um, the, the path in common with the initial level practitioner, the, fundament, the um, middling level practitioner, okay? So the wise who have trained in the common path, provided they have the intelligence and courage to bear the great responsibility of joining the festival of the profound Vajrayana, okay, once they have learned the paths of action performance yoga, Tantra, they drink the river of the four initiations that mature them and joyfully partake of the two stages of highest class tantra, uh, the liberating path. Okay, so what this means is you practice uh, the path in common with the initial level being, you practice the path in common with the middling level being, you practice The path of the advanced level being and generate bodhicitta, do the six perfections. But because your uh, bodhicitta is so strong, you can't, you don't want to, you want to attain awakening as fast as possible because you can't bear to see sentient beings submerged in dukkha for any longer than they need be. And so you know that you're attaining awakening quickly is very important. And so for that reason, you enter the Vajrayana. So you don't enter the Vajrayana because so that you can brag to other people about all the initiations you've taken, or so that you can say, I'm the highest level practitioner, better than all those other people. That's not the, the motivation. It's because you have very, very strong bod- bodhicitta. Okay, and want to attain awakening as quickly as possible, and because you want to do the the vajrayana practices. Yeah, if you don't want to do the vajrayana practices, you don't really need the the initiations because the initiations are done so that you can do those practices. Okay, then he says. May the sun rays of this effort's virtue completely dispel darkness in all beings' minds. And may I be certain to reach the supreme state, the fruit of completing the good path that rejoices the conquerors. So this work then, the colophon, this work called the essence of all supreme discourses, the definitive door to practice, is drawn from the stages of the path to awakening, it was composed by the one known as the master of altruism, the great meditator Nagi Wangpo, at White Sunrise in Shedong. Shedong is a, it's a city in, uh, in central Tibet. May it ensure the preservation, spread, and development of the Buddhist teaching over a long period of time. Okay, so Gomchen Nawang Drakpa was an, uh, a native of the Song Pro- province in central Tibet. He was the main disciple of J. Lodro Tempa, who was the sixth Ganden Tripa, the sixth Gandan throne holder. He was the abbot of Dokpo Monastery and founded several monasteries in the Loka and Dokpo regions in southern Tibet. And his Lamrim is an abstract condensation of the middle lamrim and has been described as the key to unlock that important work. And then I'll just read a little bit from the beginning for auspicious purposes. Homage to the perfect gurus. Through his superior practice of the three instructions and the transmitted and realized teaching, he is able to uphold the conqueror's thinking exactly Abiding by this great master, I shall practice the stages of the path of sutra and tantra. So, the great, uh, the author's master is Lodro uh, Tenpa, So, that's who he's paying homage to. And he's the six. he was the one who's the sixth Ganden Tripa, so the sixth successor to uh, Kappa. Okay, then this explanation of the stages of the path to awakening has four sections. The greatness of the author. Two, the greatness of the teaching. Three, how to listen and explain the teaching. Four, how the disciples are progressively guided by the actual teaching. For the first, refer to other works. (laughs) The second has four parts. The greatness of the teaching. Okay, So I think... That's good. So we finished Gomchen Larim. So next week, we will start on approaching uh, the Buddhist path. So this is the book with His Holiness that I helped with. So the Singaporeans, are you listening? Uh, some of you may have that book already. Uh, some of you may want to get it and read ahead. Um when I come in December, barring impermanence, um, then I think that we'll do a book launch with that book. And so you'll get free copies of it then if you can wait all the way until December. Okay, otherwise you can get a copy now. Okay, and so what we'll do is, is I'll read it and then comment as we go along, similar to, you know, what I'm doing here. Okay.